It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, February 8th. This is your KVMR Evening News. Science Project or Suburbia? Or maybe a mix of both? The California Report takes us to a new planned community on the cutting edge of technology in Southern California. Then we'll take a look at your local news and weather. KVMR intern news producer Julia Jem covered this month's Mental Health and Substance Use Advisory Board meeting. Up ahead, Jem speaks with Phoebe Bell, Nevada County's Behavioral Health Director, about operating challenges, the Turning Point Program, and other topics discussed in the February 3rd meeting. Then KVMR science correspondent Al Stoller talks rain, flooding, and restoration. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. One of the men accused of killing six family members in the Central Valley town of Goshen has made his first court appearance. KQED's Alex Hall was there. Starting with count one on January 16th of 2023, you are charged with the crime of murder. Noah David Beard appeared virtually alongside a public defender Tuesday and entered a plea of not guilty. His co-defendant, Angel Uriarte, is still in the hospital following a shootout with ATF agents during his arrest last week. Beard was arraigned on multiple charges, including six counts of first-degree murder with special allegations. Police say he shot and killed 16-year-old Alyssa Parraz and her 10-month-old son in the street in front of the family's home. Both defendants are being held without bail. Tulare County Sheriff Mike Boudreaux has said that while the suspects are verified gang members, the exact motive for the shootings is still unclear. For the California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Porterville. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at schmidtfutures.com. Thousands of homeowners who missed mortgage payments during the pandemic may now be eligible for assistance. The California Mortgage Relief Program is being expanded to include property owners with up to four units, and homeowners who have already received assistance can now reapply for more. Tina Johnson-Hall is the executive director of the California Housing Finance Agency. In a country where owning a home is still the number one way to build and hold on to generational wealth, the Mortgage Relief Program is saving families throughout the state. Visit camortgagerelief.org to learn more about eligibility. Here in California, we've grown pretty accustomed to power outages. Sometimes it gets knocked out by storms. Other times it gets turned off on purpose by the utility companies to avoid wildfires. But what if you could live in a community where your lights always stayed on no matter what happened to the grid? Well, in Southern California, such a community is being built. And it also has the advantage of being super energy efficient which the state is trying to promote as a way to fight climate change. My California Report co-host Saul Gonzalez was curious, so he paid a visit. 
90 miles outside of Los Angeles in southern Riverside County, one of the most technologically cutting-edge communities in the country is being built. But do you know what's weird? Standing in front of one of the completed model homes, it looks like an absolutely normal California tract house. Suburbia, not Star Trek. You don't want it to look like a, a science project? No. That's Scott Hansen, a vice president at KB Homes, the giant home construction company that's building this super energy efficient planned community called Durango at Shadow Mountain. So from the standpoint of uh, why does a home look like a conventional home, it's because that's what our, our customer tells us they want, particularly that first time buyer customer. But despite their conventional looks, each house that will be built in this 219-home community will be a showcase of green technologies. In the garage, there's a battery that stores power generated by 16 solar panels on the roof, an ultra-high-efficiency heat pump to warm and cool the residents, and wiring for an electric vehicle charger. Inside, the $550,000 home has an all-electric induction kitchen range, high-efficiency appliances, and smart devices to help monitor and reduce energy use. Take all of this together, and you have a suburban house that slashes power consumption. This community is about 40% more efficient on the use of electricity than a standard house today. But when its construction is completed, what will set this community really apart from others is its microgrid system, the largest in the state for residential development. What's a microgrid? Well, think of it as a miniature power plant that will allow this community to generate its own electricity by harvesting power from solar panels and then storing it for use in two big community battery systems. So if there are wider blackouts in the region because of wildfires, storms, or high winds, this community will remain powered, an island of light in a sea of darkness. In theory, you could... You know, if you moderate your usage, you could basically stay indefinitely on battery backup. That's Addison Marks with the company SunPower. It's partnering on the microgrid with KB Homes, UC Irvine, SoCal Edison, and the U.S. Department of Energy, which has given a $6.5 million grant to help build and then study the real-world use of the microgrid system by residents. How are the homeowners going to react here? I mean, this is going to be studied by the Department of Energy, Southern California Edison, and they're going to monitor the homeowner's usage, and they're going to simulate some blackouts. We'll have natural blackouts. And how do the homeowners react to that? Oh, really? How, you're, yeah. you're going you're gonna, to like turn this into a science experiment where so, you will have staged blackouts and see how these homes do? Correct. Prospective homebuyer John Davidson says he's seen too many stories about blackouts in California. He thinks moving in here could offer some energy peace of mind. What's going on with power in California? I think we could truly have a power problem in the future. You know, so we have to come up with other alternatives than just relying on the power company. And to you, maybe moving into a house like this and buying a house like this is kind of future-proofing your life a bit. Potentially, yes. The first residents will start moving into the homes at Shadow Mountain in March. Advocates of sustainable energy hope the innovations here will become increasingly common as California attempts to make the places we call home both greener and more energy resilient. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez. California got a few shout-outs from President Joe Biden during his State of the Union address last night. He commended Paul Pelosi for his strength following the attack in his home in San Francisco. And then there was 26-year-old Brandon Say, who Biden labeled a hero for wrestling the semi-automatic gun away from the shooter in Monterey Park two weeks ago. He saved lives. 
It's time we do the same. Belinda Hernandez Ariaga, co-director of the organization in Half Moon Bay that worked closely with the victims and shooter of that mass shooting, was also in the crowd. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, February 8th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Let's take a look at today's local news. Saturday marks National 211 Day. The day honors the call center teams and affiliated staff for their roles in connecting communities to resources and services. Although part of a national organization, Nevada and Placer County's local 211 connecting point is celebrating its 20th year of operation. The call center aids residents in obtaining services and assistance when a call to 911 may not be necessary. Mary Moore, the director of human resources for Connecting Point, says, quote, For 211, we are good for non-emergency disaster information. That's when people are seeking shelter, evacuation, transportation, and road closures. They call us instead. According to the Union of Grass Valley, 211 operates 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and typically handles around 100 calls per day in Nevada and Placer counties. Moore says, quote, 211 Day is a nationwide campaign to inform the public on 211 and to thank our call agents and resource specialists who work at the phones 24-7. I think if there's anything I would like our community to know about 211, it's the passion and compassion that our call agents have for serving the community wherever they're at. Nevada County residents can access 211 by dialing, you guessed it, 211 or texting their zip code to 898211 or by visiting 211connectingpoint.org to access the online searchable database and email or chat with specialists. Nevada County and the Fire Safe Council are partnering to offer free storm-related green waste disposal to Nevada County residents. They've organized three upcoming weekends of green waste drop-off events to help homeowners address debris from this season's severe winter storms. The first weekend is March 11th, 12th, and 13th, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m at 12625 Brunswick Road in Grass Valley. Some may know the location as the site of the former Idaho-Maryland mine. Getting your yard in order can be a big undertaking. Office of Emergency Services Program Manager, Paul Cummings, recommends planning out what needs to be done on your property before warmer weather creates a heightened fire risk. Quote, understanding what you need to clean up is the first step and best way to get started. People make the mistake of thinking it can be done effectively in one weekend, says Cummings. However, he underscores planning will save you time and money in the long run. Additional green waste events will be held March 25th, 26th, and 27th, and April 8th, 9th, and 10th. Turning our attention to your forecast from the National Weather Service, light showers may return to the mountains and foothills on Friday and Saturday. Saturday evening welcomes gusty north winds that will stick around through Sunday. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight clear with a low around 39 degrees. Thursday, sunny with a high near 60. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight mostly clear with a low around 22 degrees. Thursday, sunny with a high near 49. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight patchy fog after 2 a.m., otherwise mostly clear with a low around 37. Thursday, partly sunny with a high near 63 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR.
Coming up, KVMR intern news producer Julia Jem explores the state of behavioral health care in the county. What are the greatest challenges the department faces? What are recent triumphs? The details up ahead. On February 3rd, the Mental Health and Substance Use Advisory Board held another of their monthly public meetings. They discussed the Behavioral Health Department's functions and services, challenge currently affecting its operation, and Turning Point Community Programs, which works to support people with mental health and substance use issues, especially those of which who are experiencing homelessness. Later that day, I spoke with Phoebe Bell, the director of the Behavioral Health Department. She debriefed me on some of the things that were mentioned in the meeting and explained some of those issues to me in greater detail. First, we spoke about some of the problems that the Behavioral Health Department is currently facing, starting with staffing issues. I am Phoebe Bell. I'm the Behavioral Health Director for Nevada County. On the challenges front, uh, I think a few of the biggest challenges we face as a department and really as a field right now, first and foremost, is workforce. Um, There's a significant um, discrepancy between the number of mental health and substance use disorder um, positions available throughout the state at this point and the number of people qualified to fill those positions. And I think through the pandemic, we saw the toll on people's behavioral health needs and demand has grown for services, whether it's, you know, county behavioral health like we provide, but also private insurance, mental health services or school-based services or, um, services in jails or all kinds of settings. There's just been a growing recognition that we need to make access to behavioral health care much easier and better for people, which is great. But that's, that increased demand has led to a need for more people to do the work. And so both within the department itself, but also for all of our providers that we contract with, um, adequate workforce is a huge challenge right now. And so we have lots of vacancies and it makes it hard to provide level of care, the timely access to care that we want to offer to people. I also asked Phoebe about how the housing crisis plays into some of these problems. Here's a bit of what she had to say. Well, so another like huge challenge for the system is um, supply of housing. And that's not unique to the behavioral health system or behavioral health clients. Um, But when you have a shortage of housing and a really tight housing market and therefore rents and, and and ownership costs go up, the people that squeeze out at the bottom are the people that are most vulnerable to those kinds of changes. So people on fixed income, like disability income, and people that don't have great tenant histories and things like that. And so a lot of our clients struggle with housing instability or homelessness, and we spend a lot of our time trying to house them. And we have money to help house them. We have staffing support to help support them in that housing, but finding actual housing is an ongoing challenge and not surprisingly when people are unsheltered their mental health deteriorates pretty quickly because it's incredibly stressful to um, live without a safe home i see and 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 so turning point is that how does turning point play into that side of things so turning point is one one of our contracted providers we contract out um, to local nonprofits a lot of our services, um, which really allows us to be more accessible to the community because there's a lot of, you don't have to come to a county building to get services. You could get services through a lot of our partners that we support. We fund them to provide public behavioral health services to our population. The Turning Point is one of those providers. 
And the specific service they provide is what's called full service partnership, um, which is a, our highest intensity level of sort of outpatient care. And in a full service partnership program, people, services are available to them 24 hours a day. Um, they're supported by um, staff who have very low uh, caseloads. So it's like a 10 to 1 ratio. So every case manager has no more than 10 clients that they're working with. Um, Turning Point can try to help with housing and with other supportive services and basically um, tries to sort of meet that client where they're at and support whatever needs they have to be able to stay stable and well in community. And so Turning Point runs some of our housing programs. They provide some like that medication delivery program I was talking about. They have a whole team of people um, that serve the 75-ish clients that are in our full-service partnership program. Before ending our conversation, I wanted to give Phoebe the opportunity to add any comments that she felt would be valuable for our community to hear. Um, I guess a couple things. I think, first and foremost, one of the biggest challenges we also face is as a department is just the stigma around people with serious mental illness and um, just reminding all of us that we all have, you know, mental health, like physical health is a, a thing that we all share in common. And sometimes we have bigger challenges with our mental health and sometimes we have smaller challenges, but we all strive for wellness and balance and well-being. And for those of our neighbors who have more significant challenges, just reminding ourselves all that be in a place of compassion and caring for them. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And that diversity of humans is what makes a, a great community. Um, and then very lastly, if people are interested in getting more involved in this topic, we're always looking for new members for our advisory board, which is the meeting you came to today. It's a um, board of supervisors appointed mental health and substance use advisory board and made up of community stakeholders and volunteers who helped provide some oversight and guidance and input to the public behavioral health system. It's a great way to learn more about what's going on out there and get more involved. Is there a website or phone number that people could go to or call to get more information about that? At the Nevada County website, there's a behavioral health page, and we should have info there, but people can also call my number anytime, which is 530-470-2784. For KVMR, I'm Julia Jem. This year's punishing winter storms have flooding front of mind for many California residents. KVMR science correspondent Al Stoller speaks with Carson Jeffries about his work tackling this issue. Jeffries is the field and lab director at the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. The details of his restoration work may have you marveling with newfound appreciation at the Yolo Bypass on your next trip down 80. What has been your experience so far with restoration of natural habitat and flood protection? There's been lots of work in California since the mid-90s, particularly down on the Casumas River, which is the only undammed river that flows out of the Sierra Nevada. I would say it's probably the place in the U.S. where it was kind of this first change in mindset of the benefits of floodplains. You know, we're not restoring the whole system back to what it was historically because there are cities and farms and houses. But if we can take some of those principles that created those habitats, then we can start to see places where we have not only flood protection, but as well as ecosystem function. We recreate that function of a floodplain that provides a flood benefit as well as an ecosystem benefit. 
What are some flood benefits? When water goes out onto a floodplain, that water is fundamentally taken out of the river channel. A great example is Sacramento. Without the Yolo Bypass, which is just a large floodplain, Sacramento would be frequently underwater. When that water leaves the river onto the floodplain, it lowers the amount of water that actually has to stay in the channel. It slows it down and it lets the water drain over a longer period of time versus trying to fit all of that water down that relatively small Sacramento River channel, which would see the level rise so much that it would overtop the levees frequently. So that's the main flood benefit that we see. There's lots of other benefits that happen in those types of habitats. We see groundwater recharge. When that water spreads out and slows down, that water percolates into the ground that we can use later in the future or during dry periods. There are a lot of opportunities and benefits that we see from floodplains from a, a water perspective. Whenever I'm flying out of Sacramento, I get a kick out of looking down and trying to spot remnants of the old floodplain, remnants of the old landscape. River meanders really show up because the vegetation is a different color. I presume it's because the soil is yep. much richer there. Yep, those narrow bands, we call them scroll bars, where you do have different soil than the adjacent land next to it. Is that scroll bars, S-C-R-O? Scroll, like as in the Dead Sea Scrolls. What do you see as you're flying low over the Sacramento Valley? I love seeing the difference between the seasons and the difference in water year types. When we fly over the Sacramento Valley, what was once a wall-to-wall wetland from the coast range to the hills in the Sierra during a dry year, all we see is a thin blue line. What we're starting to see, though, is that when we have floods and flows like we've seen over the last few months, we start to see remnants of that coming back. Bypasses are full of water. The rice fields and the managed wetlands are full of water. and They represent just a little bit of a glimpse of what that historic habitat used to look like in the Central Valley. You can see not just scroll bars of natural habitat, but tens of thousands of acres of natural habitat. It just gives you a little insight to what we've lost and places where we have opportunity to kind of work on, on moving that needle forward into having these uh, floodplains in, back in the system. If we are going to be sustainable, we're going to have to figure out a way to have some green infrastructure in there. And, you know, places that allow the river to move, in doing that, creating space for the river to move is providing flood control. It's providing ecosystem function. And these kind of win-win solutions are our future. It's just a matter of time before we do it. It's how much are we willing to see in the meantime, whether it be, you know, from an environmental degradation standard as well as what does it look like from a flood protection standpoint. You know, the biggest thing going forward is finding a place where we have win-win solutions, whether it be for flood control and environment. I think we're getting there. There are partnerships that have developed over the last 10 years that have fundamentally changed the landscape and how we think about how our landscape is is put out there. You know, if we don't start figuring out ways to have multi-benefit solutions, we realize just doing single-benefit options are not really what's going to be a sustainable model and that making friends where they didn't previously lie is really where we have an opportunity to go forward. Carson, it's been really good talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. I'm speaking with Dr. Carson Jeffries, Field and Lab Director of the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for February 8, 2023. Visit us online at kvmr.org and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Wallace Design Studio Architects. 
providing architectural design for commercial, residential, and medical projects throughout California. Examples of recent projects include Insight Imaging, Culture Shock Yogurt, Cake Bakery, and Valor Oncology. More information available at wallacedesignstudio.com and A to Z Hardware Supply and Garden Center, locally owned and operated by the Wheat family since 1984, offering construction and plumbing materials, lawn and garden supplies, also beekeeping and canning necessities, on Ridge Road, Grass Valley. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Thank you.